I'm very aware of the benefits of a client-centered approach to practice and legal coaching where the client essentially is driving the bus rather than the lawyer driving the bus to me made a lot of sense. And there's this big, big market out there of people who um, need some kind of legal help. And so legal coaching is a way of getting that legal help. In medicine, we don't only have doctors who are able to provide people with services. We have chiropractors and massage therapists and acupuncturists, and we have nurses, and some nurses can even prescribe medications. Why don't we have different tiers of services in law? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And by the way, Dana, I think I'm going to have to come up with a better expression than founder. It sounds like a really, really old person, like about a 900-year-old person. Oh boy, well, I'm not touching that, but I will say we did try Director Emerita and you didn't like that either, so you've got to think of something. Okay, okay, back to the drawing board. Anyway, anyway. So today we have a conversation I had with Marcus Sixter, who is someone who has really put his money where his mouth is when it comes to developing alternative, affordable uh, legal services for people who might otherwise be self-represented litigants. And Marcus's focus is on coaching. Uh, legal coaching specifically, and you're going to hear quite a bit about the way that he set up his practice. And then for our outro, we've got some remarks from the wonderful Leona Harvey, who was a self-represented litigant herself at one point, and then became a divorce and life transition coach and a family law mediator. And she now offers services to other self-represented litigants going through family law. Uh, And she's got a great website that she's been working on, letstalkdivorcecanada.com. And she can also be found on Instagram. And she's got some really good content up there. Uh, And Leona has been a friend of ours for a long time. And most recently, one of the things she did for us that we really appreciate was to be a panelist a couple of times for our SRL school, which we just wrapped up um, a couple of months ago that we ran through the winter. So let me just tell you a little bit more about Marcus. Marcus practices out of Vancouver and Calgary. He is the (laughs) founder of Crossroads Law and Coach My Case, which is his coaching practice. And as you'll see in the conversation, Marcus sees Coach My Case as a practical way to help address the access to justice crisis that we're facing in Canada. And through his model, self-represented litigants can retain a paralegal or a lawyer, depending on their needs and budget, for remote legal assistance anywhere in BC and Alberta. Uh, Marcus has an interesting background as someone who is doing this kind of work, which is in some ways so counterintuitive for lawyers who are always used to being in charge. Um, As you will hear, he has a background in social work. He's an accredited mediator. Um, He's also done a lot of work on public legal education, presenting family law topics to a whole variety of um, organizations. So you might remember that the Ryerson students whom we interviewed in our season opener this season, we called it a new generation of lawyers, talked about how it's possible, surely, to both structure a legal practice to address real needs in an affordable way and to make a viable business. 
that both must be possible. And Marcus is an example of this. So let's listen. Marcus, thank you so much for having this conversation with me this morning. There is, I'm very happy to see increasing interest in legal coaching, and you really have been at the forefront of developing these services as an alternative to retainer-based full representation. And in fact, shout outs, you were recently named one of Canada's 25 most influential lawyers based on the importance and the innovation of the work you're doing. And I want to congratulate you personally and also say woohoo, because this of course raises the profile of legal coaching. So for me, this whole idea of coaching came uh, from that original study I did in 2013 with self-represented litigants when I was asking them what kind of assistance in an ideal world would they want from lawyers. And they consistently told me they wanted to be treated as partners in, in the process with lawyers. In other words, not to be simply being told what to do, but actually participating in the process fully. And that they wanted a coach who could enable them to be more personally effective and you know, use their own agency, their own skills, where perhaps there were parts of their matter that they could manage on their own. Now, you know, this is for traditional lawyering, an extremely counterintuitive model, because usually lawyers are in charge. And usually what, of course, we're doing in practice is selling our expertise rather than sharing it and developing the skills of others. So could you start by talking a little bit about what drew you personally to this model? Originally, what drew me to this model was the fact that I was so shocked when I entered the legal profession, um, when I was in law school, actually, and working at a legal clinic there, I was so shocked by the number of people that were self-representing in our court system. And through the legal clinic, I got to work with people who had been self-representing and then needed some assistance from a student. And I also worked with people on the other side of a file who were self-representing. And it became pretty clear that this was a, a massive issue. And it was an issue that was not only frustrating for the people who were having to self-represent and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like the system wasn't fair, um, but it was also a major issue for the court system as well. Everybody in the court right. system, from right. the court clerks who were dealing with people who are self-representing, who have lots of questions, the long lines of people at the counters who are holding up their papers, not sure what to do, and all the way up to the judges who I saw on a regular basis get frustrated and adjourn matters yeah. or you know, get upset because they didn't feel like things were done properly. And so that was really the impetus for me trying to work on a, a type of service that is directed towards assisting people who are self-represented. And where I ended up once I started my own firm was uh, looking at legal coaching as sort of a, a viable option for that. And the other reason why legal coaching to me made a lot of sense was because I do have a background in, in social work. And so yeah. I am... I'm very aware of the benefits of a client-centered approach to practice and legal coaching where the client essentially is driving the bus mm -hmm. rather, than the, rather than the lawyer driving the bus. 
to me made a lot of sense, right? Well, you know, that's so interesting about your background as well, Marcus. And I want to come back to that actually at, at the at the end of this conversation, because until I did a little bit more research on you preparing for this conversation, I hadn't realized that about you. And that does make a whole lot of sense. But but first of all, I know a question that many, many new lawyers, um, students coming out of law school with a lot of passion and interest in trying to make matters better for self-represented litigants and people who can't afford full legal services. I know one of their questions is going to be, can I make money doing this? So could you talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of commercial, um, if you like, formula or that you're, that you're using here because you are taking, you know, something of a risk by stepping away from that formal retainer model. Um, and you seem to be making this work. Well, I do think it can be a viable option. There are a number of lawyers across the country who do legal coaching as part of their practice. Um, I know many of them, and many of them are quite happy doing that kind of work. Not just the fact that you can make money doing it, but also because um, of the lifestyle it provides. What's different about working with coaching clients? Sure, working, working with coaching clients... Um, one of the things that's great is coaching clients are typically very grateful and happy that you're assisting them. They're, they are so happy to have somebody who's out there that they can use uh, at a rate that they can afford. So that's, that's great. The other, the other point too is um, lawyers who practice in this area, I think are all aware that there's this massive access to justice crisis in Canada right now due to the fact that most people, most middle-class Canadians are not going to have enough money to pay for a trial. And if you are making over a low threshold of income, you're not going to qualify for legal aid. And so right. there's this big gap in the market, mm -hmm. this big access to justice gap. And lawyers who do legal coaching, I think part of it is because they want to help address this access to justice issue, which is another reason to get into this. Um, and then a third reason, aside from the financial bit, which I'll talk about, is that it's actually a type of practice for a lot of lawyers that is less stressful. Um, working, working in a litigation practice, especially in an area like family law, um, there's a lot of stress that comes with that, with having to go to court. You know, there's just, there, it, that's just a, a matter of fact. When you're going to court, I don't, I don't care if, you know, you're a 20-year call or a 30-year call. Um, every lawyer who goes down to the courthouse uh, is stressed out to a certain degree. Yeah. Not doing that, I think, and moving away from that litigation um, for a lot of people is really appealing as well. Now, on the financial side of it, there is money to be made in this area. There's a massive hole in the market um, for legal coaching, or for, rather for people who can't afford full representation and who don't qualify for legal aid. And we know that there's very, it's very unlikely that we're going to have enough money coming through our governments to prop up legal aid to the point where everybody can have representation. And then there's studies out there like the um, Everyday Legal Problems study that came out a few years ago yes. that said that, you know, 50% of all Canadians are going to have an everyday legal problem over the course of any three years. Yes. Right? And then there's also research that's been done by the CBA that shows that in some jurisdictions, upwards of 60 and even 70% of civil cases in our courts have at least one self-represented person on the file. So those are huge numbers. And there's yes. this big, big market out there of people who um, need some kind of legal help. And so legal coaching is a way of 
getting that legal help to them. Now, there is an issue getting into this um, area. And, and the number one issue is um, discoverability. And so that's what we've really been focusing on over the last year. Um, and we've been putting- In other words, making yourself visible and, and educating, I suppose, re-educating the public that this type of service is available from lawyers. Exactly, exactly. That type of public education, that this is something that is available for people. Because when people are researching their legal issues uh, or looking for legal help, they're not putting in limited scope retainer. They're, they're not put, putting in unbundled legal services in Google. No, those aren't expressions that are familiar to people no, in the no, public. And, no, and, um, and that's another reason why we've really focused everything down to legal coaching, because we think that it's a more accessible term as well. And we're trying to really embrace that term and push that term out there um, so that people know about it. And that's what they're searching. Because that, for me, I, and, and I think for everybody who's in this sphere, at least everyone I've talked to says that the discoverability of legal coaching is the biggest barrier for people. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. And, and it's something that, that we certainly see at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, that people come looking for these kinds of services, but they don't know what they're called. They don't know how to find them. Um, so that's one of the reasons we set up our directory of self of professionals assisting self-represented litigants. Um, but yes, we, we need to make this more and more visible. So I'd like to talk a little more to you now Mark, is about the model you've developed, because given that legal coaching is really so brand new, um, it's very interesting watching the way that it's being rolled out um, and the kinds of services that are being provided. And first of all, I just want to compliment you on your transparency on your website in relation to fees. I look at an awful lot of, of lawyers' websites and it is astonishing to me how 99% of them still don't actually say anything about fees except that they're going to be very reasonable. So congratulations for being transparent. And I think that's something that the public really values. But you have in your model, um, very interestingly, and it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me, but I'd like to know more, you have this idea of a navigational coach, and then you have the idea of the legal coach and you know, a little bit of a distinction between those two types of services and when they would be provided. So could you say a little bit more about that? Legal navigators are paralegals or other legal support staff who are able to provide certain legal information and services and guidance to people. And I thought so that's... focusing on procedural issues and how yeah. to find your way through the procedure and the forms and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the barriers here is the ability to pay for a lawyer's fees. And so what we've tried to do is create two different tiers, really, of service. So if you don't have the funds to pay for a lawyer at their rate, then maybe you have the funds to pay for a paralegal at their rate. Right. The services are going to be different. So the services that paralegals provide in our firm, the legal navigators, um, it mostly is um, helping to draft documents, um, editing documents, um, giving information about the court system right. and how it works, where to file things, how to serve things, um, what companies are out there uh, to help you serve. Um, so that type of information. Uh, but also there's a distinction between the type of work that paralegals can do across provinces. And then some provinces, yes. paralegals can also provide legal advice. 
And so in British Columbia, our paralegals are able to provide some basic legal advice as well. And they're running right. support calculations with support calculators. Um, and, and hopefully in Ontario, one day we will be able to have paralegals do the same thing if the rules around family practice are ever relaxed. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing. I think it's inevitable. Um, I, I, yeah. There's massive pressure right now on law societies to open up this type of work uh, to paralegals to some degree. It just doesn't make sense that we're not offering different tiers of service for people depending on their legal needs. And if you think about it, the analogy is, what about medicine. I mean, medicine, we don't only have doctors who are able to provide people with services. We have chiropractors and massage therapists and acupuncturists, and we have nurses, and some nurses can even prescribe medications. Why don't we have different tiers of services in law? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. There's definitely different needs out there. There's different needs in terms of the finances that people have. So why don't we have different tiers? And I think it is inevitable. And I think one of the signs of its inevitability is in our new divorce act. Um, in the new divorce act, there's a definition uh, that's included there for a non-lawyer providing legal services. So I think the federal government is aware that this They're is already anticipating it. It's yeah, coming much, down the pipe. Much in the same way as British Columbia. So let me let me ask you, because this is this is where it gets, I think, to be really you know, complicated to, to make the right evaluation. How do you steer people or even do you steer people towards a navigational coach or a legal coach depending upon their matter? Because the thing that I can certainly see is that the lower cost of the navigational coaches is going to attract people right off the bat. But there may be some individuals with matters that you feel actually need the services of a lawyer coach. So how, how do you go about doing that kind of management? Well, from a client-centered approach, I don't think that it's our place to sort of force people into, like to basically put up a barrier and say, nope, sorry, I'm not gonna do anything. You must you do X or Y, yeah. No, I, I think you need to give the options and describe right. what those options are and, and how those options may benefit you. And all of the paralegals who are working at Coach My Case are trained um, in kind of issue spotting and, and, you know, they're trained in terms of when it's appropriate to redirect people, um, to tell people, you know, maybe you should talk to a lawyer, but also we're pretty flexible in, in terms of the, the type of work that we can provide our clients, because if a paralegal, and, you know, this just happened, I think twice last week, one of the paralegals um, emailed me and said, you know, this is the issue on this file. Um, I, do you think that this looks good, this document? So I take a look at it. And then the paralegal is up front with the client and says, okay, I'm going to send this up to Marcus. Is that okay? Right. He's going to take a look at it. He's going to bill you at his rate, but just to look at this and approve it and maybe give some advice. So that's what I did. So you can do this in a way where you have different tiers, but those tiers of service can work together and complement each other to help people better. There is an option where, you know, we can even move beyond paralegals and lawyers strictly um, helping people as well. And it's one of the things we're going to be working on in the next year is providing a third tier where we have um, software essentially that is providing information and assistance to people who are representing themselves. And within all of those tiers, there's going to be avenues for people to move up or down. 
if things get too complicated, if somebody is overwhelmed and they feel like they just can't do it, then they can be referred to a lawyer um, who like, can just provide the full representation. Something we've heard for some time now from unbundling and coaching clients is that, you know, they like to have that flexibility that they can increase the level of assistance they're getting or decrease it depending on how they're actually managing their tasks. And what I love about what you're describing, Marcus, you know, is that you've been so thoughtful about the ways in which people might put these different pieces together, but they are, as you said, driving the bus. Yeah, they are the agents here. Yeah. And, and what I, what I tell people in, in seminars um, is when you're thinking about a client centered approach, it's really a change. And you said this off the beginning of, of this conversation about how traditional legal services are, you know, top down and the lawyers in charge, but really we need to just ask our, it needs to be, you know, you need to ask what, instead of what can my client do for me, you need to ask, what can I do for this client and what can I do for this client? There's a whole range of different things that may be possible here, right? It may not just be, you know, I'm going to go to court for you and do everything for you. You need to listen to what I'm saying, but it may be, you know, someone just needs an hour long conversation the day before they're going into court and that's it. Right. So let's, let's go back to kind of where we started here. Um, because as I said, I didn't realize until I, I did a little bit more reading up about you, even though we, we've had some contact in the past that you have a background, both as a social worker and as a mediator. Um, and so do I. What do you see those pieces of your background giving you in terms of special insights here? I was trained in a client-centered approach, um, and I was also trained in um, community development. Um, community development, at least modern community development, has a lot to do with um, um, essentially empowering people, empowering communities, yeah. um, meeting people where they are. But also I worked in the addictions area for an, you know, a few years. Oh, before even, really? Yeah, yeah, before I became a lawyer. And, um, and that is at least the way it's done now. It's very heavily client-centered. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't force somebody to stop using drugs, right? You have to work with them, give them the information and the tools um, that they need to make the decisions on their own as to what they want to do. And in fact, if we're not client-centered these days in law or medicine or anything, um, I don't think you're going to survive very long as a business. All businesses are racing at this point to become more and more client-centered. Yeah. And the ones that are the most client-centered are the ones that are the most successful. Look at Netflix, look at Uber. I mean, you're giving people everything up front as much as they want, the client has total control over everything, you know, and I think that that's the direction that um, that law has to go. And I entirely agree with you. Thank you, Marcus. I wish you every success with this. Thanks a lot Thank for the conversation. Thanks, Julie. I'd like to talk about what value does legal coaching or divorce coaching have for a self-represented litigant who cannot afford full legal representation, but does have the means to afford some level of support. So as a divorce coach, I work with clients to help them successfully navigate the dynamics of separation and divorce, which can include the legal, emotional, as well as daily aspects of the upheaval. 
Legal coaching is very different from traditional full legal representation as when I work with clients, I'm providing them with legal information, not legal advice. And it's a very client-centric approach, meaning that the focus is on providing a positive customer experience for the client, or whereas Marcus noted, the client is driving the bus. So I'll give you an idea of what a divorce coach can do to help clients or to help self-represented litigants through their matter. So I provide my clients with organization and structure. I work with my clients to set goals and tasks and I offer them pre-separation, during the separation and post-separation and divorce support. I work with my clients to help them understand how to navigate the separation and divorce process, whether they are navigating it with a fairly amicable ex or maybe one with a slightly higher conflict personality. I work with my clients to teach them effective co-parenting tips and strategies, including effective co-parenting communication. I also help my clients to understand family law by providing them with legal information, not legal advice. And by giving them this information, I find that it empowers them to have an understanding of what their legal rights and obligations could be during the process. I also provide them with information that allows them to start thinking about how they might want to develop a parenting plan, what child and spousal support may look like, as well as what the division of property and assets can look like. So essentially, by working with the client in an organized and structured manner and providing them with information, when the client goes to work with their lawyer, they end up working with their lawyer in a more efficient and cost-effective manner. And I find that this is an incredible approach because from the client feedback that I get, the common thread is that they feel like the amount of service they're receiving increases, but that their overall legal bills are going down. And I really think that that's what our family court system needs to be all about. It needs to be all about helping people, servicing people, and servicing the greater population. And as Marcus mentioned, there is a massive hole in the market for people who cannot afford full legal representation, but do not qualify for legal aid. And that's where I really see the benefit of a coach being implemented by way of a tier service model to help these individuals not only navigate the process, but feel empowered doing it. So what questions should a self-represented litigant ask themselves about their own needs and abilities before they decide that they may want to work with a legal coach? So I think out of the gate, it's important to note that there are different types of legal coaches that practice in different areas of coaching, similar to how there are different types of lawyers who practice in different areas of law. You want to make sure that you understand what area you require service in and you want to also assess your potential legal coach for their experience and qualifications in that specific area so that you make sure that they're able to help and offer you the support that you need. So to give you an example, in my practice as a legal coach, I specifically call myself a divorce coach as I work with individuals who are separating and divorcing. But it's also important to note that even under the umbrella of divorce coaches, there are still coaches with different areas of expertise. So using myself as an example again, I have additional education and training as a family law mediator, 
but I also bring both my personal and professional experience as a former self-represented litigant and someone who has worked with self-represented litigants, helping them to navigate the court system. So this background, education, and training really allows me to be involved in many aspects of the divorce process, which has essentially sort of turned into my niche or my value proposition. I also really enjoy working with self-represented litigants one-on-one or working in tandem with self-represented litigants and their lawyers, which are typically hired by way of unbundled services to help them navigate the court system. And this really allows us to take more of a team-based approach where we'll strategize and create a plan and next steps for each member of the team to do. So to give you an example, Um, I was recently working with a client and their lawyer in a team-based approach, and once again, the lawyer was retained by way of unbundled services, and we would have a strategy call in which we would come up with a list of next steps, and most of the next steps, and I would say about 80% of them were really non-legal work that the lawyer didn't have to get involved in, but work that I could assist the client with. So the client and I would then step away and I would sort of assess the client's ability and comfort taking on certain tasks. And if there was anything that the client wasn't comfortable with, they would utilize my services as a legal coach at a reduced rate instead of paying the higher hourly rate of the lawyer. And what this allowed the client to do was become more involved in the process, more empowered in the process. The client leaves feeling like their support increases, but their legal bills go down. And this is a really effective model to use with your clients because when you can delegate certain tasks to certain individuals, whether it be the client themselves, the legal coach, or the lawyer, this team-based approach really allows you to utilize individuals where they're needed most. And as mentioned, it just makes for an overall cost-effective process and more efficient use of everybody's time. So the most positive experience that I have had working as a legal coach, or more specifically a divorce coach, is the general feedback that I get from my clients who have moved away from those traditional legal service models and utilized a more tier-based, innovative model where they can access you know, services such as divorce coaching or utilize a lawyer by way of unbundled legal services. And I find that the general feedback I get from clients when they move over to this more innovative and future thinking model is that they feel like their level of support has increased, but their legal bills have decreased. And that is truly the value proposition. And that is what is tapping into the hole in the market that Marcus, um, addressed earlier, which is the fact that the majority of Canadians cannot afford legal representation from start to finish in their matter, but do not qualify for legal aid. So it's really about, you know, utilizing the services that are available to you, creating and exploring new service models that are more attractive to customers. And I can tell you from my own personal and professional experience, there is nothing attractive about the traditional legal service model, but there is so much to explore in these new innovative models by finding new ways of servicing clients so that they can leave at the end of the day, not only feeling like they've had a good customer service experience, but that they have been empowered.
Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Charlotte Sullivan, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. First, we have a press release from the Attorney General of British Columbia announcing new rules of procedure for the BC Court of Appeal. The new rules, which come into effect this summer on July 18th, are expected to be easier to understand and more efficient for those with cases at the Court of Appeal, including both lawyers and self-represented litigants. They come on the heels of years of public consultations, mostly conducted in 2019 and 2021, and recommendations to make procedure more accessible to lay people. Highlights of changes made to the rules include, in addition to new court forms that are more readable and that include plain language instructions for those filling them out, that clarify the requirements for applying for permission to appeal, updating filing requirements, outlining the process for case management, and simplifying ordinary costs and adjusting tariffs. For many years, advocates have argued that access to justice would be greatly improved by the use of simpler procedures in the court system and by the use of plain language in the law, in rules of procedure, and in decisions coming out of the courts. These changes to the rules of procedure in BC are a welcome step in the right direction, aiming to improve access to justice for all British Columbians and for anyone using the court system in the province. For our second piece of news for today, we have a piece on parental relocation cases in family law by Georgia Lee Lang for the Lawyers Daily. In our increasingly globalized mobile world, parental relocation cases are becoming increasingly common. These cases involve one parent wanting to take a child or multiple children a fair distance away from the other parent and are challenging and emotional cases for all parties involved. In her article, Ms. Lang focuses largely on the recent Ontario case of Springstead versus Springstead. In this case, Karen Springstead wanted to move from Rockland, Ontario to Halifax, Nova Scotia with her two children, aged eight and 10. She and her ex-partner, Mr. Springstead, had met and married in Nova Scotia in 2010 while working for the Department of National Defense. However, in 2018, they relocated to Ottawa for Mr. Springstead's job. In 2020, they separated, and after this, they began an equal parenting schedule, one week on, one week off. In 2021, after two years of leave, during which Ms. Springstead sought treatment for PTSD and other mental health issues, she sought an order for sole custody and to relocate to Nova Scotia, citing her need to gain emotional, physical, and mental support from her family and friends in that province. She argued that the improvement in her mental health that would result from this move would be in her children's best interests, and also noted that the cost of living in Nova Scotia is lower than it is in Ontario. Ms. Springstead represented herself in this matter. Ultimately, the court determined that the move would not be in the children's best interests and declined to order full custody. The week-on, week-off schedule could be maintained. Although Ms. Springstead had been the primary caregiver during her marriage, since Mr. Springstead often had to travel for work, he had been significantly more involved in his children's lives after separating from his wife. Moreover, although the children were born in Nova Scotia, they had no remaining ties to the province, and in contrast, they had an established, stable routine in Ontario. The relevant factors that the court relied upon in making its decision included the father's increased presence in his children's lives following the separation, including his taking on a more active role as a caregiver, 
The significant disruption that a move would present to the children's lives, and in particular, the destabilizing effect of such a move, the mother's health issues, which had not affected her ability to parent, and which also showed signs of improvement per her psychologist, the mother's financial reasons for seeking to move, which the court considered to be less persuasive since she had an annual income of $74,000 that would allow her to subsist in Nova Scotia or in Ontario, and finally, the impact of such a move on the children's relationship with the father's extended family, especially given that the mother had initially blocked contact between them after the separation. In the final paragraph, Ms. Lang muses about whether Ms. Springstead would have been successful had she not been an unrepresented party. Although she makes no determination on this count, she does note that the recent trend in mobility cases in British Columbia, for instance, is that parents who wish to relocate are often permitted to do so. Finally, last week, the controversial Bill 96, entitled An Act Respecting French, the Official and Common Language of Quebec, was passed by the National Assembly of Quebec. Although discussing the new law and all of its intricacies would take us weeks, I wanted to briefly highlight a couple of provisions in the bill that affect access to justice in Quebec courts, which were discussed in a recent article by the CBC. Bill 96 makes clear that, as is also the case for healthcare and hospitals, natural justice exempts courts from conducting all of their business in French. Quebecois may seek justice in the courts in either English or French. However, the bill also states that judges in the province will no longer need a specific level of knowledge of a language other than the official language, which in Quebec is only French. Although many of the judges in the province do speak French, it may become harder in the future to find English-speaking judges to hear cases in English if there is no requirement for bilingualism on the bench. That concludes this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Please join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.